welcome one and welcome all to another action-packed, thoughtful, challenging, and occasionally frustrating episode of the Every Other Week Missionary Podcast. Now, at that point, right there, you're thinking, Matt, I don't know how to break it to you, bro, but you've actually titled this whole podcast thing, The Everyday Missionary. You do them every single week. Why are you calling it The Every Other Week Missionary Podcast? Well, because basically for all of 2022 so far, I've only been able to roll them out every other week. And so that's sort of been pathetic on my part that I have not been on top of my game like I wanted to. Now, there's been all sorts of reasons for that. There's been some family stuff, some health stuff, some other stuff. And so all the way around, what it's just kind of turned into is the fact that I haven't been able to turn these out every other week or every single week because it seems like it's turned into every other week just based on circumstances. But my hope, my plan, and my agenda is that this week gets us back on track to every week so I can focus on the series that started the beginning of this year. So, um, because that's my heart. And this whole series is really important to not just my my kind of processing and, and perceptions of American Christianity, but it's important to me because I feel an urgency. I think a legitimate urgency to speak to the issues that I sincerely uh, see within our shared Christian faith in our culture and to speak to them with a sense of urgency, not because I take great joy in picking on all of us as uh, evangelical Christians, but rather because I take Jesus's warnings about uh, where religion can go sour, I take those warnings seriously and I feel like I would be negligent if I didn't speak to those things and try to get all of our attention so that we can recalibrate and we can ensure that we are striving to be more like Jesus and less like kind of religion in the name of Jesus. Because those are very real possibilities, right? That you can, in the name of Jesus, not actually represent Jesus very well. In fact, it's interesting, this week uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at a series of stories that Jesus tells or, or messages like sermonettes to his disciples. And one of those sermonettes is this uh, idea of anybody who causes a little one to, to stumble and fall away from the faith, it would be better if they had a millstone tied around their neck. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus talks about this, the context is very different. It's actually talking about causing little kids to stumble, Like right? That's the context. In Luke, it's a different setting altogether with a different intention behind the story. And he's saying it to his disciples. He's saying it to his followers. And he's telling them to be on guard about the danger of their conduct, their words, and their attitudes causing other people to either fall away from the faith or causing other people to reject the faith, not on the merits of Jesus, but on the merits of how people who claim the faith don't represent Jesus well in relationship to the faith. And so people reject Christianity, not because it looks like Christ, but because it looks like religion in the name of Jesus, right? So he warns of this danger and he says, man, when you do that, when you cause people to leave the faith or you cause people to disregard the faith, not because of me, but because of you, your conduct, your attitudes, your bad behavior, your, your hypocrisy, your judgment, your whatever. He's like, it would be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the depth of the sea. That is not a warning to disbelieving outsiders. That is a warning to insiders who claim to be following Jesus. That's why I'm doing this series. That's why I think it's so important. 
Because what I have found for a number of years now is that there are two categories that are really important to me. One category is the disbelieving world. And another category is those who have left the believing world because of frustration, hurt, or wounding in the context of the believing world, right? And so I care about the disbelieving world having a proper perspective of Jesus from his followers. And I care about those who stop being followers because they get wounded by followers for wrong reasons. Those are two categories that have always been really, really dear to my heart. It wasn't like something I tried to set out to care about. This is just a uh, kind of a kind of a niche, 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 niche. There's the word I'm looking for. It's a niche category uh, that, for whatever set of reasons, God has just placed on my heart. And I think there's reasons for it. I could probably unpack and understand, but I don't think it's important to this podcast today. It's just to say that that matters to me. And so from that, much of what I care about is then having an honest evaluation of us as evangelical Christians and figuring out, hey, what are parts that are healthy and what we hold to on our heritage? And what are parts that are sick that we have bolted on as time has gone on that get in the way of what our biggest priority is? Now, I can tell you matter-of-factly right now that doing a podcast around that topic is painful. And it's not just painful for uh, all of you as listeners. It's painful for me as the delivery agent because part of why that delivery happens is self-evaluation. I'm looking at where I have failed in the calling of Christ, the cause of the gospel, the purposes of the kingdom. I see where I have failed by defaulting to my religiosity as opposed to really defaulting to Jesus's way of living in relationship to kingdom and gospel. I've made these mistakes. I've done these things. I have spoiled the reputation of Christ in my world in the name of Jesus, but not in the heart, spirit, or disposition that Jesus wants me to embody. So that's why I I I feel so compelled to do this series because when I look at evangelicalism in the United States, I can sincerely say uh, I think it is sickly and sickly in a systemic kind of way. In fact, I was talking to a friend about this recently where I said, if you look at the roots uh, of this idea of evangelical, there's some really good things in there, right? There's good things when it comes to how we approach the Bible. There's good things on how we want to share the gospel. There's good things in how we want to embody the kingdom. Those are all really good things. But the danger is always when you take a good thing and you throw an ism on the back of it, right? So you know this to be true in other areas. As soon as there's an ism on the tail end of an idea, it seems that it kind of starts to systemically corrupt the idea, right? Because you start to bolt on new heritage, new tradition, new rules, new ethics to the system. You start to get new criteria. You start to get defensive about the system. You start to kind of size up those who are with the system and those who stand against the system. And after a while, it becomes problematic. And I think that's what's true with evangelicalism. It's not as though I can look at this and say, oh, well, it just has a cancer in the lungs of the body of evangelicalism. No, I go, no, there's some cancer in the brain and there's some cancer in the lungs and there's some cancer in the bladder and there's some cancer in the bones and there's some cancer in the blood. Like it's a system-wide thing where there's still good stuff in there. But there's also cancerous stuff, and so the system itself is not as healthy as it could be, as healthy as it should be, and frankly, I believe, as healthy as it must be. And much of my reasoning here, when I talk about those who have left the faith, 
or those who are looking from the outside in at the faith and saying, man, I want nothing to do with that. Much of what weighs heavy on my heart is the fact that both of those groups are highlighting things about us that frankly we have no good excuse for, like no good excuse for. And that's the stuff we have to be really honest about. Because as we're going to see a little bit later here in the podcast, uh, Jesus does tell us that, hey, if you follow me, your odds of persecution are really, really high. Like they're incredibly high. But 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 part of that, what persecution is all about is that we're authentically living like, looking like, speaking like, feeling like Jesus to our world and they reject Jesus so they reject us. But when I think about these two categories of people, right now disbelievers looking in at evangelicalism and people who were a part of evangelicalism and them stepping out of it, and I listen to their critiques and criticism, their critiques and criticism criticism are not, the church is just so much like Jesus, we can't stand it. It looks, thinks, and functions so much like Christ, it's disgusting to us and we're rejecting it. No, what they're highlighting is actually... It's so inconsistent, it's so hypocritical, it's so uh, sold out to its own sense of security and privilege and rights and um, kind of this entitlement of itself uh, that it doesn't look anything like Jesus. In other words, what they're rejecting is that we claim a figurehead that we don't seem to embody, and that's bringing the rejection, and that's not persecution at all. I've shared this many times on the podcast. That's what Peter talks about when he says, hey, if you are earning your licks for your inconsistency, that's on you. That's not persecution. That's poor behavior, and poor behavior needs to change so we can look more like Jesus, and then in looking more like Jesus, either A, people are radically won over to that, or B, people are radically offended by that, but either way, we know it's Jesus and it's not extra baggage or our baloney just stinking up the room or whatever else, right? It's authentically who he is. That's what we have to care about. And so that's why I'm really passionate about this entire series. And I say that because, again, I want to remind us that I don't take any joy in delivering this kind of mail. I really don't. Um, I, I was sharing with another another friend of mine recently. I said, you know, there's a reason that the Everyday Missionary podcast will never be super popular. And the reason it'll never be super popular is it is a local church pastor not talking about how others are wrong and we're right, but rather it's a local church pastor wanting to look at the local church in general and say, hey, I think we're getting some things wrong and we need to get right if we're hoping to be effective in our culture. See, I I think about podcasters who their whole job is to talk about the other side is bad, wrong, broken, or stupid, and we're on the right side of history. We're on the right side of theology. We're on the right side of church and life and whatever else. Those podcasts are awesome because what it turns into is, hey, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We're the right ones and they're the wrong ones, and everybody loves to hear that. Like That stuff sells. But when it's a self-analysis, when it's self-reflection, when it's having to be self-corrective even, that doesn't sell so well, right? And and the proof of that is pretty much every prophet in the entire Bible, right? Like every prophet just 
Nobody was listening to their podcast. Nobody was buying their books. Nobody wanted their stuff in real time because nobody likes to hear that, hey, maybe I'm not doing this as well as I could, would, should, and must. But but I really believe that it's high time for us in evangelicalism to realize the recklessness of the ism and to get back to the purity of what Jesus seeks from us, which is why I'm doing this whole series saying, hey, let's ditch this stuff that's getting in the way of revival and getting in the way of showing the world what Jesus is all about that is actually being a stumbling block in every wrong way and therefore keeping people from seeing the right way. And let's instead start doing things in the right way, which is the Jesus way, which is pretty tough to do. I get it. But that's our marching orders. And I'm really committed to that. I I, I keep bringing up in this series this, this notion of Paul telling people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look at my life if you genuinely want to see Jesus. I mean, I think that's a bold undertaking. And it's so bold that, that I keep running into people saying, ah, oh, but that's never been true. Christianity's never been able to do that. It's never been able to master this thing. It's always been more broken than it has been healthy. And then I get frustrated by that because I'm like, but that's not the story I'm reading in the Bible. Yes, I read of locations and churches and persons that were failing, but I also read of churches and locations and, and persons that were succeeding in this endeavor to authentically incarnate Jesus in their surroundings. And then I'm looking at going, well, what were the dispositions that they had? What were the things that they embodied that allowed that to happen? And then what are the things that are the opposite of those things? And how are we guilty of actually elevating opposites as though they're good things and we're missing that they're actually destructive things and that they are more about us building our own little personalized kingdoms in this world for our edification, our security, our enlightenment, whatever, as opposed to advancing his kingdom, which is upside down and backwards and different than the way we would do it in the world, but it's the way that the gospel actually gets done in the world. Not just the way the gospel gets spoken or preached in the world, but the way the gospel gets done in the world. Because one of the convictions I'm starting to realize is that I think sometimes we go, hey, as long as we're preaching the gospel, we're doing what we're supposed to do. No, the way the gospel gets done in the world is that a people who embody its values are then speaking its message. And in speaking its message, it is a message that is compelling because the world sees a people embodying the the essence of what that message is all about. And the gospel message is actually powerful, changed lives. People that are so radically reoriented, they stop looking like broken, selfish, sinful, self-seeking, self-preserving humanity, and instead they look like the least of these humble servants, slaves of this man named Jesus who made himself a slave of all to reach all by coming under and lifting up. I mean, that stuff's powerful and profound, and that is the power that he deposits into his church, provided that his church actually walks in the Spirit, rests in the Spirit, leans into the Spirit, it's saturated by the Spirit, sets its mind on the Spirit, and lives in a, in a Spirit-empowered way where then the fruit of the Spirit just kind of presses out of our lives into the world around us. And the world says, wow, you are an utterly different people than what we anticipate in religion. See, I really believe that all of that is true. All of that is true. And I sometimes get sad that we then try to water it all down and say, but it's not realistic. If it's not realistic, then is it all just make-believe? If I just chalk it up as, ah, that just doesn't really happen. Well, then 
should I believe what the Bible says as far as all these things that are given to us, all these things that are gifted unto us and into us to be kind of dispensed through us? Like, is this all just silliness or is it actually what Jesus promised to do? See, I want to lean to the idea it's what he promised to do, but it doesn't just happen on like, I don't know, like autopilot. It happens when we do kind of what we learned earlier in the series, right? When we say, you know what, I'm not going to let the Bible be the power source, but rather I'm going to let the Bible be the guide to the power source, right? And the power source being, man, I'm going to live in the spirit, trust in the spirit, walk in the spirit, pursue the spirit, and be desperate for the spirit to do these things in me so I can live out the stuff that's important to him. That's what this whole thing's about. And part of that then is dismantling the things that we hold dear that are actually idols in the name of Jesus as opposed to, you know, uh, thing, you know, we, we tend to hold these things as dear in an idolatrous way and we need to kind of let those things die off so we can get back to and focus on the things that Jesus blesses when we do them, even though they're hard to do or scary to do or re- require a reorientation of our thinking so as to do them in the way of faith as opposed to try to secure things that are kind of overriding our steps of faith. Hopefully that kind of makes some sense there. Now, with all of that kind of put out there and stated, uh, the title of today was originally going to be uh, this juxtaposition because we're doing that throughout this entire series. And it was going to be this idea of the Jesus-driven politic versus politics driving Jesus. Say that again. It was the difference between Jesus-driven politics and politics driving Jesus. And that was going to be the plan. And yet I've decided that, you know what, I'm going to punt that one uh, down the field. It's like fourth down. I could go for it, do it today. And I'm like, no, I'm going to wait for another week or two before I do that. Because I think there's some other principled things that we need to emphasize before we deal with that topic. I think that topic's really important, but I think it's important for for reasons that I think are better to put further down the chain because I still think we have to kind of address our orientation at large. What we most should prioritize and and care about and see as kind of our 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 bearings on the compass if you will. And so instead of doing that topic, I decided to title today peacemaking versus security ensuring. Peacemaking is what Jesus calls us to do. And that is very different than security ensuring. And I think this this does get to one of the challenges within our shared American evangelicalism. uh, And that's that for the last several decades, we've made security assurances a big deal in our faith. We have backed things that are all about protection, safeguarding, and ensuring different types of securities in different types of way, whether it be fiscal security or uh, bodily security or moral security or whatever else. We've made this security element like the big deal, and we haven't made peacekeeping and peacemaking and peace creation enough of a big deal. And I think because of that, when you're more in a security mode than you are in a peacemaking mode, at its core, and this is the big idea of the podcast today, it causes us to look at the world around us with wrong eyes. If security is your big idea instead of peacemaking is your big idea, then you will see those around you that risk your security as a threat 
as opposed to if you make peacekeeping and peacemaking your priority, you see the world around you as an opportunity. Or maybe I'll even put it differently. If peacemaking is your priority, then you look at all the world around you and you go, they have a need and only I can meet that need. And only I can meet that need by being willing to risk myself, subject myself, put myself in harm's way so I can bring betterment to their lives. I must lay myself down as a peacemaker to succeed in bringing peace to their lives. I must take that risk. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. I mean, this is Jesus goes to the cross as a peacemaker. But if we look at the world around us and we see risk, threat, danger, fear, problem, then we're going to look at a large segment of our society with suspicion, with worry, with concern, with this need to build fences, to have weapons, to go against these people that are risking our way of life or risking our values, risking our heritage, risking our religion in some capacity. And we're not going to see them as needing something from us. We're going to see them as being threatening to us. And that completely obscures the whole purpose of the gospel. It obscures how we're missionaries, right? Instead of being missionaries to those who need to hear this message and see it embodied in our lives as peacemakers, we're looking at them as threats that we are to stand against, not as missionaries, but as warriors or as soldiers or as safeguards or, you know, you name it, some kind of protective layer that we need to watch out against as opposed to a lost hurting people that we need to press into and reach out for. That's going to be how broken that comes or becomes when we're looking with wrong eyes. And so I think it's incredibly important for us in letting go of our evangelicalism. Uh, part of that is letting go of this notion of there's this segment of society that is dangerous, that is just wrong, that is just retrobate, that is just awful, that is just sinister and sick and twisted or whatever else. Like, Because we come up with some pretty strong language for people that don't see the world as we see it or for people who don't share our faith and share a type of humanism or progressive perspective that we go, no, 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 that's going to destroy our, our, our heritage and our American kind of background and society and what it was all built on and everything else. Like, so we're automatically looking at these people, not as people to reach, but as people to resist. And that is so contrary to what Jesus is sending us in the world to do. So it's the difference between the peacemaker and the security insurer. Now it's interesting to kind of look at this a little bit I'm only going to look at like four passages in this podcast to kind of highlight how Jesus wants us to think differently about our world and especially about the idea of security and risk versus peacemaking. And and it comes in a weird way. So here's the scene, um, or at least starting the passages that I want to look at for today. So here's the scene. Jesus is getting ready to face the cross. Right, So he's there with his disciples. He's kind of outfitting them for the last stage of the journey. (coughs) Excuse me. A little bit of a cough there. 
So, um, you know, he sent them out before and he said, hey, take these things with you. Don't take these things with you. You know, so it's like, hey, you don't want to take, a, you know, money bag and, you know, you don't need an extra tunic and this kind of thing. So he sends them out equipped in one way and then they come back and like, wow, we preached, we shared, we cast out demons. We saw Satan fall from heaven. I mean, it's amazing all the stuff we did, right? So here's at the tail end of everything and he's outfitting them again. All right. And so this is in Luke chapter 22. And this is what he says to them. All right. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. So this is an object lesson. He's like, remember when I sent you out against the odds, did you lack anything in the end? even though you were against the odds going into it. Worse than that, he actually says, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. So he's like, you are outgunned, outmatched, outmastered in every worldly way. I sent you with nothing. So were you really without anything? He says, no, right? You didn't lack anything really. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has come to fulfillment. So the scene, number one, I sent you with nothing. Did you really have nothing? They said, no, we had everything, even though we had nothing. He goes, okay, well, now we're going into the final phase of this. And I want you to actually have money. I want you to have a knapsack and I want you to have a sword. You go, oh, okay. So now they're equipped where before they were stripped down and had everything. Now they're equipped, but he equips them. And then he says, here's why, because it's time for things to be fulfilled that what that basically I will be numbered with the transgressors. So he's here with a posse. He's got his posse around him as he gets arrested. They're all going to split when he gets arrested. He's being numbered with transgressors. Which transgressors, transgressors are, are he, is he being numbered with? With his posse here. And what did he tell his posse to do? To get money, to get weapons, to get all the things that this world says you must have to succeed. In other words, he takes his group and he basically makes them a group of transgressors by outfitting them in this way. He says, now I'm numbered with the transgressors. We actually look like a mob. All right, this is great. Now I know that already throws you off. Like, wait a minute though. Why would Jesus take them from the stripped down version to the amped up, well-equipped version and then say, hey, now we're all a bunch of transgressors. Well, it's to teach a lesson. That's the brilliance of Jesus. Because here's the thing. They still had in their mind that Jesus, when he finally pulled off this whole thing, he was going to be a newer and better Caesar that kicks Caesar's butt, right? So they still have this idea that Jesus is a warrior king and he's going to crack some skulls and he's going to wipe out Rome and he's going to set up his throne there in Jerusalem and they're all going to be rolling with him as a bunch of baddies, right? Because he's a thug and they're going to be thuggish too, but in the name of God and righteousness. That's what they're thinking at this point. And so he's just feeding them almost into the system that they believe. That's right, guys. The time is near. Get some coin. Get some weapons. Get ready to roll. You need a knapsack, baby. We want to pack it up because we're going to go on a roll and we're going to roll Rome, right? That's what they're going to think when he tells them this. And so they're ready to go. But then the event happens. And people with clubs and swords come to arrest Jesus. And we know the story. It says in some gospels that a nameless person pulled out their sword and they struck one of the servants of the high priest. 
In other Gospels, we find out that it was Peter, yes, our main man Peter, that pulls a sword, chops an ear, wants to try to bust a skull, misses the skull, catches the ear, and then Jesus does something really strange. He reaches down and he heals the person who lost the ear. In other words, Jesus stops and cures, heals an enemy, a person that's coming to arrest him. He actually gives a healing touch too. And that's disrupting. Like, why tell people to get swords if when they use them, you immediately turn around and undermine their efforts by healing the one that they use the sword on? But then the lesson gets even deeper. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said to Judas here, friend, do what you came to do. So it says, then they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew the sword, struck the high priest servant on his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So Jesus says, all right, you guys, I need to be numbered with transgressors. Do transgressor things. Get money, get knapsacks, get swords. That's what transgressors do. And then on the scene, when they're getting arrested as transgressors, because that's what Jesus is getting arrested for, he's going to be numbered with the transgressors. His posse is a bunch of transgressing looking dudes. Jesus flips the script and in the most brilliant object lesson ever, says Peter and group, this is not how it's going down. This is not how we will roll. I asked you to buy swords, have cash, have a knapsack to prove to you that that's not the way we're doing it. If you want to live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So he only told them to buy swords, which by the way, he tells them to buy swords. They come up with two and he's like, yeah, that's enough. You know why two's enough? Because it's an object lesson. And the object lesson is going to be, we don't roll with swords. And the reason we don't roll with swords, the reason we don't roll with a bunch of cash, the reason we don't roll with a knapsack, the reason we don't do any of that, his point is fundamental because we're here to serve humanity. We're here to be peacemakers to humanity. We are not here to ensure our security at the cost of peacemaking. We're not here to ensure our way of life at the cost of others' spiritual and eternal lives. We are here to be the least of all, the servants of all, that we might, in fact, win the more. And so if we don't identify peacemaking as our primary objective, and instead we think our objective is security keeping for ourselves, uh, just being worried about how the world might want to corrupt our Christian thing, and therefore we need to take kind of this uh, oppositional tone to the lost world, we're going to miss what it means to be a missionary. We're going to miss what it means to be a kingdom ambassador. We're going to miss what it means to actually do, do the work of peacemaking because a peacemaker by their sheer kind of definition is one that says, I'm not coming to create conflict. I am actually willing to sacrifice myself for the greater good of peace. But see, I think evangelicalism now for five decades has taken up this thing of, no, it's a culture war and we must battle it out and we must stand against the tyranny of this sexual thing and that moral thing and this political ideology and this social agenda. And, 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 and we start to look at so many people on the other side of our, of our positions with suspicion, with worry, with fear, with hate, 
with disdain, with mockery, with criticism and judgment. And that gets them nowhere near the kingdom. In fact, if anything, if we're doing all of that in in the name of being followers of Jesus and in the name of his kingdom, but that's our disposition, all they know about Jesus's kingdom is that kind of critical spirit. They're not hearing gospel in that. They're not hearing the, the love of God, the grace that saves. They're not seeing a humility of lives that are dominated by the peacemaker Jesus. They're seeing something that's just combative and pushy and demanding and, and complaining. And, and that is toxic to the gospel. It's toxic to the kingdom. And it's toxic to what it means to be a peacemaker. In fact, I think about Jesus when he starts off the Sermon on the Mount. He gives the Beatitudes, Right? And he says it in verse 9 of chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the ones that will be called sons of God. So when you look at this whole list of things in the Beatitudes, what's pretty amazing is the pinnacle of this is being called one that's just like God. You want to know if you're a true son or daughter, a child of God, you embody his characteristics. And what is the characteristic that most embodies the personality and the nature of God? Peacemaking. And, and the proof of that is the person of Jesus. I mean, Jesus goes way out of his way to make a pe- be a peacemaker, right? He literally, it says in Romans 5, makes peace between us and God. How? By surrendering himself for us bad, unrighteous, ungodly people, right? Read Romans chapter 5. It, was, it wasn't one of the passages I wanted to highlight today or I already have it brought up. But when you look at it, it's like, hey, scarcely would a person die for a good or righteous person, but Jesus dies for all of us sinners. And he dies for all of us sinners to make peace between us and God. So the ultimate peacemaker is not self-protecting, self-defending. The ultimate peacemaker is sacrificial and self-giving, looks at those in need and lays themselves down for the need as opposed to looks at those in need and says, oh, you're risking my way of life. I need to resist you. So a very different disposition. One desperately needed by us as those who claim to follow Jesus. We need to embody his way of doing things in the world as opposed to our grab a sword, protect ourselves, and stand against the tyranny of this world. Now, we need to see all people are under the tyranny of sin, and we are the ones who can go in as peacemakers and make the difference. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They're the ones that look most like God in the world. And then immediately, what's he say? Immediately, doesn't skip a beat. Very next words right? Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So no sooner does he say, hey, Blessed are the peacemakers that he says, ah, and when you're a peacemaker, you're probably going to be persecuted. But when you're persecuted, rejoice when it comes to that persecution. See, this is why the object lesson of get a sword. Now, when you've pulled it out, let me tell you, put it away. You live by it, you die by it. The reason is I didn't call you to be warriors. I called you to be peacemakers. I didn't call you to fight. I called you to reach. Now, I know some of us are like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, but that's not right. That's not fair. And our culture, I can defend myself. I can protect myself. I can be those things. I don't know if I'm wanting to debate that so much, but what I am wanting to push on is all of that breeds an attitude. It breeds an attitude of us versus them, good guys versus bad guys, and that taints how we see at least some of the world around us. 
some are not worthy to try to make peace with. Or if they're going to risk me, I don't have to be a peacemaker at that point. If I'm actually going to have bodily harm, I no longer have to be a peacemaker towards somebody that wants to, to bring bodily harm to my life. Now, again, I'm not trying to undermine self-defense. That's not really my heart here. My heart here, though, is that if we have an attitude toward any individual that says, you know what, I no longer have to try to be a peacemaker in your life, that is unhealthy. And if we have that attitude toward an entire segment of society because we feel that they're somehow risking our way of life or they're risking our religious liberty or they're risking what we hold as dear, if we go, therefore, I don't have to be these things to you. I need to just fight you and I need to resist you and I need to undermine you. Then honestly, we're undermining everything Jesus calls us to do as everyday missionaries because he calls us to peacemaking peacemaking that can lead to persecution, but a persecution that when it happens, we take it with joy because there's something in there that he will use to bring peace in places where there wouldn't be peace. When we just resist and fight, we are the furthest thing from peace that is possible. When we resist and fight, we are the furthest thing from the gospel as possible. It's just sin versus sin. It's just dog eat dog, right? It's hating and being hated. It's everything in Titus chapter three that's negative. And we're not called to that. We're called to something positive. And when we're called to this positive thing and we embody this positive thing of saying peacemaking matters more than security ensuring, well, here's the newsflash. That that attitude is the only way we're going to actually change the world. See, I'm a big fan of Christianity actually changes the world. I I really am. I'm I'm not a big fan of this. Hey, Christianity is just for us few people that are the remnant. No, I, I really believe that the whole purpose of the gospel is to reshape the world. I believe it's supposed to be on earth as it is in heaven. I believe what God said to Abraham is actually supposed to happen. I believe that Jesus came into the world because God so loved it that he wants to save the world. Not condemn it, it says in verse 17 of John 3, but save the world. So I'm a pretty firm believer that what we do is actually what reclaims the human race in the name of God through the power of the gospel and how we live it out and things like this are the big difference makers. And so I see this in James chapter three. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and it's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. So he's talking about there's godly wisdom and ungodly wisdom. And ungodly wisdom is actually demonic wisdom, it says. And the demonic wisdom wants to fight, resist, be difficult, be embittered, you know, see them as the bad guys and us as the good guys. All of that is like demonic wisdom. But godly wisdom, right? It's pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and partial and sincere. Just just spend some time unpacking those in your own thinking. What does each of those things mean? Right? How do I apply those in a real world context in the everyday affairs of life? How do you apply those when you're watching the news? How do you apply those when you're reading social media? How do you apply those when you're interacting with people who don't agree with you? How do you apply those when you're frustrated by mandates or the absence of mandates or you're, you're frustrated by rules or the absence of rules? You're frustrated by, uh, you know, this party or that party. How do you apply that verse? Because that's all Jesus cares about. He doesn't care about your position. He cares about you doing those 
those things in the context of your position. And if you don't do those things in the context of your position, or I don't do them in the context of mine, then guess what? My position matters more than what Jesus wants me to do. That is an epic failure every single time. So whatever this is saying has to apply to whatever our positions are. These are the ways we do it. But then he goes into verse 18. He says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, we will not vote righteousness into being in our world, which is why I didn't do the political one this week, because I want to make sure we deal with this stuff before we deal with the political one. But we're not going to vote righteousness in place. We are not going to petition righteousness into place. We're not going to boycott it. We're not going to demand it. We're not going to you know, be able to resist righteousness into place. No, righteousness only comes into place in a culture when it is sown in peace by those who make peace. And the only way we make peace is we embody being peacemakers. And the way we embody being peacemakers is we lay down our verbal arms, we lay down our attitude arms, we lay down, again, all of our arms in essence. Like a peacemaker by their disposition is saying, I am here to sow peace into the environment. I am not here to sow discord or distrust or a sense of one-upsmanship, or I have moral superiority over you. Like that doesn't sow any peace into the world. No, we're, we're called to be something different. And I actually think what we see in verse 17 informs the peace sowing of verse 18. How do we sow peace? By being peaceable and pure and gentle and reasonable and merciful and good in what we do and impartial and sincere. Like we embody those things. And we do it in such a way that it's undeniable that there is a power at work in us beyond just normal human will or religious dogma. That it's this power from on high that shapes our lives and shapes our dispositions in such a way that we are ambassadors of peace, that we are farmers of peace, sowing seeds of peace, because that is the thing that will produce true righteousness in our world. Not religious righteousness, not superior righteousness from our own kind of moral, again, one-upsmanship, but an authentic, genuine, humble righteousness where people are reconnected to God and God is alive in the lives of people. And from that, they are then working as those who want to bring peace to others who don't have peace in their own lives, their own souls. They don't have peace toward those they think are their detractors or, uh, you know, just different from them. No, no, no. We just look and go, man, they need peace and I have peace and I'm going to go to them as a peacemaker so that they too can potentially have peace. And even if they reject me, I will let them reject me still in a disposition of peace. I will still be peaceful even as they attack. I will be peaceful as they criticize. I will be peaceful as they stand against me and call me a religious nut or a Bible thumper or, uh, you know, holier than thou or whatever it is. I never want to embody those accusations, but rather when I'm called those kinds of things, I want to make sure that I still remain a peacemaker, that I think of Jesus on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, that should be our, our attitude when we look at our, our, our lost, our disbelieving, our broken world. Father, forgive them. Not that We should not look at them like, oh, there's those sinful ones and those sinful ones and how deplorable and how despicable. No, Father, forgive them, right? They, they, they are casualties of a spiritual war. They don't even know what they're up to. 
And so God, show them grace, show them mercy, show them love, show them peacemaking. Not simply by supernaturally putting it into their lives, but Father, show them those things through my life. Because I want to be an ambassador of peace. And I believe if we can own the value of peace more than the value of security in our own lives, man, that is when we will be very powerful, potent, and useful everyday missionaries.